I didn't write as much about breathwork or sex. Um, only, only because I just I love this I love this concept of the psychedelic hypothesis and wanted to see how far it would go, and wanted to see if there was any any, any data for this. Uh, and at the end of the day, it, it seems like we're working with the same data points. And I, the phrase you just used, the hominid nervous system. I mean, I, I, again, whether it's through the use of psychedelics or otherwise, you know, we are walking bags of neurons. Um, and in this nervous system, as Dennis McKenna says, you know, every spiritual experience is ultimately a drug experience. If you're talking about serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin, et cetera. I mean, we're all just, you know, manipulating that nervous system in one way or another. And I think that that's the real key. If, if there is a key beyond psychedelics, I think that's the key is why are we built with this nervous system? Like Eliade says, I mean, religion or metaphysics is just, it's the combination of, of uh, all this, you know, high aesthetics and biology. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're biological beings. And so, I mean, to, to, I don't see how you can investigate religion and ignore that. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to our podcast, where we voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Today, I'd like to introduce a new regular host on our show, Jamie Wheel. He is executive director of the Flow Genome Project and author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and leadership, specializing in the neuroscience and application of flow states. Welcome to Collective Insights. Super psyched to connect with Brian Murarescu, the author of The Immortality Key, a New York Times bestseller from the tag end of 2020, a graduate of Georgetown Law, a both lawyer and a renegade student from the Jesuit system, um, and potentially persona non grata at the Vatican. Yeah, we haven't, I haven't heard the update, uh, but Brian, great to have you and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Good to finally see you, Jamie. This is, uh, I've been super excited about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I had the chance. And in fact, you know, he, he, here it is. Here, here is a, a fantastic copy, a, a big, a big, thick book. And and actually, when I was reading it, um, I almost had complexity envy. I was, I was like, oh shit, Brian got to use footnotes. He got to use a bunch of Greek and Latin. Nobody stopped <laughs> him, and everybody's telling me to dumb my stuff down. So, so I literally uh, both felt um, permission and a little FOMO uh, on the classical nettery. So well done, man. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I drove my editor crazy with uh, with the endnotes and everything else. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I want to. You know, this is probably you know this is some inside baseball, but there were there were a couple of things that I that I emailed you right away, which was how the hell did you get footnotes in in a popular yeah. book? Because I had to fight tooth and nail, and mine got punted. To 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 uh, my my compromise was to get to do it all online and just do a digital referral, but yeah. like this this notion of you don't get to put a superscript where you're making an unverified truth claim to mm. me seemed anathema you know you're like how do you get away with that right right no so, it, was, it was hard for me too i mean we didn't need fortunately we didn't have a long conversation about it i mean i just assumed that i'd be able to footnote and when i started doing it there wasn't much pushback mm -hmm. uh, so I, I kept going until they told me to stop nice and then and then how about how about the other you know hidden um hidden challenge for an author, which is do you or don't you get to read your own book? So so did you, so how did you pull that one off? Was it just there was no there were no rental act, voice actors who could possibly have made their way through all the translations? I think that was it. I, I included just enough Greek and Sanskrit in the text to make myself the only viable candidate. Dude, 
Fantastic. Well, seeing that I'm just about to jump into recording mine, what what was your experience like? Because that's a, that's a thick book, The Immortality Key. So, what was yeah. it like to actually put that thing to audio tape? Like in uh, in retrospect, it was an entertaining experience. But while I was doing it, it was my first uh, recording experience ever, mm -hmm. uh, book book or otherwise. So I, I didn't realize how sensitive the mics were. So I had to sit perfectly still so as not to even you know rub my arm against my sleeve for the better part of like 30 minutes at a time. In fact, this is the position I'm doing right now. So <laughs> I, I, I would strike this position for uh -huh. 30 minutes at a time without moving. And we did that for uh, about five hours a day over the course of seven days. Oh, sweet Jesus. Okay, okay, so I'm in for it. Okay, that, that's the second half of February for me. So we'll, we'll see cool. how that all goes. All right. Well, we'll do so. So then, I'm, I'm working backwards from the small things. So I'd like I'd like to have as much time as possible to get into to get into the deep dives. Um, so so, what's up? You, you did you get a chance to read the opening to Stealing Fire, the Alcibiades little section? Of course. Of okay. course. I mean, okay. I, your book has been on my wish list for you don't know how, how long, man. So I'm, I'm, this is like thrilling for me. Well, fantastic because because dude, that that came from. 20 years ago, me reading wow. an obscure piece. And it was, it, well, I'd literally gone down all the same rabbit holes that you, you've just unearthed, right? So it was the Wasson and the Ruck and the, all the things. And I yeah. just remember this obscure statement in some book about there being a prosecuting case about someone having ripped it off, ripping off, ripped off the Kaikion to use for a personal party. That's all I remembered. I just remembered, holy shit, that's a fascinating story. So then going back to realize it was Socrates' top student, the whole bit, I was like, oh, this just gets better and better. Um, yeah. and, then, and wrote a much longer treatment than ended up getting into the book. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, but, but just fascinating that, that, our, uh, that our interests cross because for me, I, I did, I followed all those things. Um, in the up to the mid 90s and that was kind of when i stepped out of uh, academia and and at that point it was sort of you had the wassenbruck soma hypothesis you had the provisional lsa kaikion hypotheses you kind of had them all out there and there was even a a conference at the palace of fine arts in san francisco called the something 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 world conference on entheogens and I even sneakily got professional development money from the prep school where, where we were teaching right out of grad school. And I just fudged it and called it ethnobotany, not entheobotany. That's what it was. It was, it was on entheobotany. And there was, there was, I think, a guy from the University of Lisbon who was there doing a really detailed breakdown on medieval tapestries and art and, you know, the pictures of Adam and Eve with Amanita and all, you know, all the, all the usual suspects, right? right. And it, and it kind of got to the end of the rope. It was sort of like, okay, so this is the, you know, fascinating, fascinating signposting and possibilities, but to go any further than this is really going to be to be just you torpedo your academic credibility. That's right. Right. And, and, and that's kind of where I left it. 10 years raising kids pop out and people are like, you got to read Brian's new book. I'm like, I've been there. I've done that. Unless he's come up with some new, some, some truly new research, I, I'm not interested. And I, so I had an actual allergic response to the whole <laughs> subject area. And, and then enough people were like, no, no, you really have to. You really have to. And then, and then I got to watch your, your uh, riff with Joe, which is, again, one of the few I ever have time for because I don't commute. And I don't use Stairmaster, so like podcasts are a puzzle to me as to when I can right. ever do them. So I watched yours and I'm like, oh, fuck yes, this is right on. <laughs> so super stoked. Well, thank you. That, that's meaningful to me, man. I just, I mean, I, I also wanted to do something new. And as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. I mean, more inside base, 
I was just um, for the past hour talking to Professor Carl Ruck up in, up nice. in Boston, by the way, who is this 85 year old professor whose career was very much impacted by writing and talking about the psychedelic mysteries as early as 1978. Um, mm. So, yeah, yeah. you know, his, his writing always inspired me. And I vowed, you know, I wasn't going to be just another white guy who did drugs, found God and wrote about it. I was going to do something original to capture the attention of Jamie Wheel. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, and, and I would I would the thing that I appreciated the most, uh, you know, about your general approach, and we can for sure talk about literary style uh, as well, because there, there's some things where it takes one to know one. And I'm going to bust your balls. Yeah. But but um, <laughs> but I, I absolutely experienced a delta, a, you know, a difference between the way you showed up in the conversation with Joe and the way Graham was, where Graham was flying at 100,000 feet in generalities, you know, teetering on the point of psychedelic polemicist. You know, it's the man, it's the system, it's always been this way. And, and then you would go and you would get into an incredibly precise, here is this pottery, here is this image, here is this word, here's the etymology of that translation. And just really appreciating the considered, and I would have to imagine it was, you know, reinforced by your legal training, but probably incipient with your Jesuit schooling, right? Which, which is close textual reading um, and not getting yeah. out too far over your skis. Yeah, um, I couldn't put it better myself, man. I mean, the, the, the concept of exegesis, especially in classical languages, started yeah. when I was 14. And then it's, but you're right, it actually got worse with the law. I mean, I went from reading ancient languages, I mean, literally one to September 2002 in Georgetown, I'm doing just as much microscopic analysis on this case law, constitutional case law. And, you know, where you are reading footnotes and you are reading word by word. And it was in, in, in a weird way, it was a very similar process of being extremely detail oriented. Mm. Well, along those lines, so, so hard V's, is, is, it, is it weenie weechie? Or, or is it Vini? So, so do you go with do you go with the Vulgate, or do you go with the classical on pronunciation? And you also spell Kaikion with a U. So, t so break that down for me. No, it is. Yeah, I know. I've, I've. In fact, I also had this conversation this morning with a former Greek Orthodox priest. I'm, I'm always soliciting advice or having advice <laughs> offered to me um, on the Latin. I kind I have a weird pronunciation. I do go with the soft, uh, Wendy Weedy. Mm -hmm. um, on, on the Greek, I have a very Erasmian pronunciation of the Greek, which is why I say kukion instead of kikion. Mm -hmm. um, but then I will go into modern Greek for like that 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 epigraph that appears at the beginning of my book about mm -hmm. how to die before you die. I do kind of mix it up, so I'm like a I'm I'm a terrible hodgepodge of accents. Well, and then and then what about Magna Graecia or Graecia? Which do you? Yeah. I say Magna Graecia for some reason, although on mm -hmm. other words, I'll use a soft C because it sounds great. Dude, we're, we're a wash. We're a wash <laughs> in the sea of linguistics. Yeah, and, and in fact, for me, for me, you know, uh, Latin, Latin in high school, so I, I had Zaverian brothers. So, so we had the full black cassocks, the whole bit, but, it, you know, slightly different flavor. And there was a, my advanced Latin teacher had a quote from Ovid. Over, over his board and it said, who looking down on 20 or 30 upturned shining faces does not say more than he knows. And you're just like, <laughs> which, which in this Instagram expert age should just be plastered fucking everywhere. You know? <laughs> hey, we need more of it, exactly. Tell you what, now, now I gave up there. I gave up, I did not, I, I continued with, with French and other languages in college for like kind of the grad school prep. 
But Latin, I got lost in the pluperfects. Like you start getting into some of that decoding and you're just like, okay, this is no longer a super fun crossword puzzle where at the end you get to understand what Caesar did in the, in the, in the Punic Wars. You know, you're like, yeah. now I, I like there's 17. This is like, same thing happened to me in calculus. You know, like where you get, there's a certain point of sophistication where it then just becomes like Rorschach blot intuition and art again. And those are, those, those are the places I just crashed and burned. But I, I sure yeah, but as hell... Me too. But, but yeah. me too. I mean, I left. So by the time I was 21, I went to law school because I was tired of Latin and Greek. I had eight years of it. And then yeah. it was only like taking that step back because you, you spend so much time in the weeds of the grammar and syntax that you forget like what you're reading and why you're reading it. And you miss really obvious things like the connection between pagan ancient Greek and very Christianized Koine Greek in the New Testament. And like that doesn't hit you until I was like, I don't know, in my mid 20s and just sitting down with Euripides and the New Testament or John and realizing, I mean, it's, it's the same language. And yeah. if it's the same language where the same kinds of things happening to these people over centuries and centuries, I mean, that it really took me law school and just doing something completely different to reread those texts from adolescence with just, you know, fresh eyes. Well, dude, let's talk about that. So, so the fact is, you said you weren't going to be, you know, like a stone, a, a stony white boy coming in and writing stories, fantastical stories about the past. And yet, on the other hand, that you you were a dog with a bone. I mean, you did something that I never had the guts to do, which was take time out of family life and just say, right. I'm writing this some bitch on spec. You know, like you can take me or leave me as husband and father. You know, you know, but I'm just going to bankroll all these hours to do this other thing that may amount to nothing. You know, like yeah. that, that for me was, was always the hurdle I couldn't get over. So I needed a book contract, you know, to be like, okay, I'm yoked to this. This is a, this is a real thing. So, so you take us from, you know, Jesuit Catholic boy, right? Through what was this, what was the seed of this idea and why, especially for someone who hadn't had direct experience of those experiences, what was it about it that you couldn't put down? because I was always on the hunt for that thing um, that we have poor verbiage for that we call God. Uh, this, this, this experience of the numinous and the sublime and the transcendent. And for some reason, I, I, so I've had mystical experiences thanks to the Jesuits and thanks to other things. I mean, as, and as a young boy, had some strange experiences. Um, and then when I started reading the psychedelic literature, I started to realize it was very similar to the near-death literature somewhat similar to the uh, mystical literature from Christianity and monasticism um, that I'd been studying my whole life, except I was 27 when I was reading the psilocybin reports out of Johns Hopkins. And it took me that long, again, just to put all these pieces together. And when I started reading about psilocybin, I was reminded of guys like Gordon Lawson and Albert Hoffman and Carl Ruck, who I'd read as an undergrad. Uh, in you know the late 90s and just again put down for many many years and here comes psilocybin of all things reminding me that sacraments have always been there and is it you know is it is it possible that another sacrament was descending upon us in these clinical trials in, in the place where you'd least expect them right in, in the clinical laboratory is it possible that we were tapping into some of those those secrets those best kept secrets from the ancient mysteries I mean the same things that got Gordon Wasson thinking about this in 1955. His first reaction on mushrooms was, I think this was elusive. I think this is what was happening. And it, and it took him 20 years to put that all together with Albert Hoffman, by the way. It didn't, 
didn't happen overnight. So, I mean, these things tend to tend to percolate, which is part of the magic of these mysteries. Well, let, let's not skip over it, right? So, so you're, you're long gone on book tour. There's nothing you can, there's nothing you can say or do. I, I became increasingly out of fucks, basically, <laughs> from, from our last book as well. I'm like, yeah, enough of, the, enough of the talking points. Let's just talk turkey. So, so, so you're an accidental mystic. That's what it sounds like. And, and shit, yeah. how about um, walk me through what were some of the more, um, you know, productively disorienting experiences you had, the ones where you're like, oh, the world isn't simply as it seems. Right. Well, I, mean, I won't get into the details, but I had a, a near death experience when I was five that I, I didn't know how to compute as a five year old or a 10 or a 15 year old. And then uh, on my on my retreat, my Kairos retreat, I know you're a big fan of that word uh, on, on my Kairos retreat with the Jesuits when I was 17. I I had, I guess, what I would describe to you now, and I've never said this before. Uh, I would just just describe as a confrontation with the thing that the Catholics call the Holy Spirit. Uh, or the, the pneuma. Um, and so the concept of like, not some imminent God, the father, who I didn't know how to identify with and not some, you know, semi-divine figure, um, anthropomorph like Jesus, but I mean, some other kind of sense of feeling or being that I could actually interact with. And it hit me in the heart, like very, very hard that I was surrounded by people who loved me. And for some mm. reason that hadn't occurred to me in the first 17 years of my life or had been interrupted at some point, right? And what, my, was the situ what was the situation? Were you by yourself? Were you in the midst of things? Um, so as you know, as you know with the Jesuits, I'm somewhat prohibited from talking about the details, but I will. <laughs> you, you cunning bastard. Yeah, that's how, that's how they persisted so long. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, um, it was over the course of these three days, you're doing different exercises in retreat. And it's not too different from what you would find in other retreat centers. And, um, and it was just, it was very meaningful to me because it was the last Kairos retreat of the senior class. I'd been postponing it and postponing it and focusing on my Greek and Latin instead. And I finally went and put the books down where, you know, I found solace really. And I, and I found relief in my, in my textbooks. And I put it all down in, this was April of 1998. And, um, you know, one thing leads to another and uh, through some meditative practices and some contemplation, um, which I'd never really done in any kind of methodical way, all of a sudden I find myself prostrate at the gates of awe and um, things, things are happening and I start having dreams that I couldn't really interpret, things that never happened to me before. And that honestly propelled me toward studying mysticism in a very profound way. Oh, so wait, so you had this initial breakthrough experience of Numa. And then mm. that that catalyzed that, that sort of that veil stayed open, and then you can then you had accelerated dream experiences as well. Yes, and and that's when and so at seventeen, I mean, then I went to college specifically to study the classics, mm -hmm. and that's when I picked up Sanskrit, and I started meditating a lot when I was in Providence, and I think that that's when it really started was on my Kairos retreat. Hmm. And, and you're describing the Kairos retreat as a as a thing within the Jesuit tradition. So to just give us a quick little backstory on what that is and the place it holds in right. that tradition. Um, so, so so quickly, I mean, it's it's the concept of um, it's that disruption. You know, you need to um, pause the ordinary events of your life and take time off for contemplation. And so um, I went off. It was an all boys school. So I went off with a, a bunch of my mates. I don't know, maybe a couple dozen. Um, and so a couple dozen would go at each time, you know, every couple months into this retreat. And we were accompanied by the brothers and uh, the president 
of the the school at the time, who I'll never forget because he looked just like Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, oh. And in fact, we called him we called him Obi Wan. He's a super this super wise dude, uh, who's still around by the way. Father Solder, thank you. I, I always looked uh, like Father Guido. He had a gold chain and drove a Cadillac. <laughs> very, very different. But we also had the hippie, the Jesus, the Jesus freak hippie brother from the '70s with a bowl cut and a beard. Looked like he was straight out of the Planet of the Apes. So like we had a very lively. I prefer those two. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, well, I mean, you, so, so I'm, I'm there at this, I think it was in rural Pennsylvania somewhere. And you are, at least in my case, I was learning about a whole different kind of Christianity from mm. the Jesuits. And, you know, we celebrated a mass that was unlike any mass I'd ever celebrated. And, uh, I received a communion unlike any communion I'd ever seen. It wasn't psychedelic, but it was very organic and kind wow. of natural. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, there, there's something else to this, to this religion. There's something else to this. You know, this, this is how it may have started. Just, you know, small groups of people getting together without the stained glass and incense and just kind of meeting in these intimate settings, right? In nature, by the way, surrounded by nature. And wait, and, but now, now, was this put on and coordinated by the Jesuits themselves? For sure. Yeah, for sure. But it was very distinct from the experiences you had within the school also overseen by them. Uh, well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, so we went to church um, on a regular basis with the Jesuits, and you know we we had you know religion class. We learned all about the New Testament, and this was this was a part of that curriculum, but it was reserved uh, for only one moment. It was it was three days um, in your four years of prep school, typically okay. as a senior, that you would take off and finally learn like. It was kind of like an initiation for me. I mean, you know, it you sounds know, like a sort of confirmation booster pack. I mean, looking back on it now, that that's a great definition for Kairos, as a matter of fact. If it was a confirmation, yeah, because I was 10. At, what the hell did I know for confirmation? Yeah. And my and first, I was eight when I first took communion. Um, you're just, you're just, you're way too young for that. And and, and even 17 is young. Uh, so if it was a booster, maybe I think it was my real, I mean, it was something I would absolutely consider sacramental. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so then, Okay, so you, you went hunting. You went hunting for the real thing. And, and interestingly for me, by the way, like my path went in the opposite direction. I, was, I started looking, um, looking for where did Western civilization go off the rails? Like, oh, first experience of Kairos. Like, oh, fuck, this is a thing. Thank God, you know, and why aren't we all here still? Or, you know, and therefore, where was the, where did we bugger it up and drop a stitch? And so I went right. backwards all the way to like proto-European contact, like what was clash of civilizations when it was still a fair fight. So you could really kind of start seeing memetically which culture actually, you know, you know, had it going on. Um, so it's fascinating. We've both come kind of full circle, but, let, but let's, um, I, I, A, I don't want you to have to repeat a single dog and pony thing that you had to in the fall. So let's, let's keep this conversation fresh and generative for you. Um, and then I am curious, I'd love to get into the book and I'd love to, because um, it feels to me that at least as I, in, in, you know, as I read it, there are a handful of like key waypoints in your thesis. And I just, and I was just super curious to kind of slow them down and, 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 and hear you unpack the bridging moves. Cause right. Cause I mean, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. So the first is, you know, Neolithic, uh, evidence of Neolithic use of psychoactive compounds uh, into graveyard beer into Eleusis. So 
just walk us through, are there any kind of hard left turns at Albuquerque, right? Are there a, a few hops and a skips <laughs> in between those things? Because obviously, right, the idea that humans have been making use of psychoactive compounds for as long as we've been human. Now, whether it's correlative or causative, you know, honking great TBDs in those, in those inquiries, right? But the fact that there is evidence of that, whether that's burned hemp seeds, opium, poppies, you know, all the, all the things, right? Yes to that. Now, do you, ex do you perceive, would you stand by something stronger than a circumstantial linkage between them? Mm -hmm. And if so, how and why? How do we go from graveyard beer to the holiest of holies and elusive? Good question. Wow. Um, so I was on the hunt uh, for beverages as a way to reverse engineer the sacrament of the Eucharist, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start with a wine beverage, one question and one avenue of pursuit for me was trying to trace back wine as far as it would go. Um, mm -hmm. And as far as I could tell, and I think this is still the case, it only goes back more or less to 6,000 BC in, in terms of Eurasian um, uh, winemaking, um, and which even at, at that time, you, you do find mixed beverages, mixed concoctions, like mm -hmm. wine that's been resonated with terebinth, for example. Maybe it's just a preservative. Um, you know, by, by ancient Egypt, 3150 BC, you're seeing wine mixed with all kinds of things. Um, um, we could say psychoactive, not necessarily psychedelic, uh, but, you know, I'm starting with this concept of a potion, and my big question was, what kind of wine was this? I call it the most mm -hmm. overlooked question of the past 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the Last Supper, there's Jesus and his mates, and they're drinking something, and it's called oinos in the New Testament. But when you look at what wine actually was to the ancient Greeks, it was routinely described as a pharmakon, right? Mm -hmm. In the language of Greek, which means drug, obviously. So my, my idea, and I got this from Terence McKenna, by the way, but, but my hypothesis was that wine and beer were the vehicles for administering these drugs. And it turns out that's how the archaeochemists talk about it, too. Like mm -hmm. Pat McGovern. At and, and, and wouldn't that just be ethanol as extractive and stabilizing tincture? I mean, the same way that grain alcohol that's, is used for herbal remedies these days. And... That's right. And, and that's mm -hmm. I mean, that was my intuition 12 years ago. But it was I mean, fun for me was to see that reiterate itself over and again. And exactly what you just said, for example, I've heard the same from Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins University. I mean, so th this is something that- Matt, Matt, Matt is, we're actually, we're doing, a, we're doing a research project with Matt and we're, that we're co-sponsoring on PTSD oh, and really? breathwork. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, tell him I said hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. He's a super insightful guy. And th that, that jumped out at him as well. Mm -hmm. um, that, and, and maybe this was Terence's great intuition um, in the food of the gods, which is that th these are actually perfect receptacles, um, perfect ways to, to administer and protect the sacraments, right? Um, and so I basically started looking for the hard data to support that. So I mentioned, you know, going back 8,000 years to wine, but it turns out beer is much older, and I couldn't mm -hmm. find any psychedelic beer 12,000 mm -hmm. years ago. But I did find beer 12, 13,000 years ago in places like archaic Israel, um, what mm -hmm. is now Israel and Palestine and archaic Turkey um, and the Gobekli Tepe site. Um, but I don't I didn't really see any, you know, hard and fast data, hard scientific data for psychedelic beer or wine mm -hmm. until I got to about the second century BC. So my honest answer to you mm -hmm. is I don't know where the psychedelic beer and wine is all throughout the Neolithic. And I think mm -hmm. that as we do more testing, hopefully we find it. But there's certainly lots of fertile territory. Mm -hmm. 
which actually that, that brings brings to mind for me my favorite of Graham Hancock's books, which is Entangled, which is that fictional story where he talks about the Neanderthals actually being awake and having kind of like hive mind and then this super spooky energy coming in and, and then, you know, this time warp between, you know, story now and the story then. I wish he'd actually finished that trilogy, you know, because... Oh, wow. I like that too. I like that too. Yeah. I ta- yeah, I was like, okay, now this, this to me feels, you know, generative and interesting um, versus another cut on, you know, meta conspiracies. Um, so, so hell yes to that, right? And so the question is, is so now you are dusting off with this new evidence from, you know, the archaeochemistry and pharmacology, right? So it's mm-hmm. awesome, you know, and also, you know, taking steps back to perhaps other scholars didn't you know and and very much i mean you know you're very obviously in that gordon wasson tradition in the sense of you know an amateur in the sense of simply not being institutionally affiliated enthusiast going back but with chops so like you know both your etymological and pharmacological um, elements i think are are the two really key things that you've brought to this this revision um so you are dusting off the pagan continuity hypothesis right which is basically just that idea that from the greco-roman traditions there was much that was absorbed mutated carried forward etc and you're specifically linking it to the pharmacology of essential substances and sacraments right just just for mm-hmm. anybody that hasn't already kind of heard your argument now my sense of that is that one of the places that you and you know and, and, I, and i gave you gave you the heads up on this on an email one of the places that i was like oh you, you're pulling a fast one here was the wedding at cana Right. So, so because and you do something that, again, I've done a couple of times. I'm like, oh, my God, this isn't original at all. Mine not being original, seeing you do it as well. was was the you tell a story without the, without the reveal and you deliberately wrong right. foot people. So like I did one in Stealing Fire on like 1803 Cane Ridge, Kentucky, the second great awakening, describing it identically to Burning Man. I actually did it at Burning Man for the first time. And it was like end of summer. The furthest west of the, you know, people up, you know, de- you know basically the, the DJs up on, you know, up on scaffolding, everybody losing their minds, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but that didn't happen this week. You know, it happened a few centuries ago. So you tell the, the story of the wedding of Cain, which is in the book of John, right? Yes. And that's, the, that's Jesus's first miracle. And it's only described in the book of John. And you make a really interesting case. And is it Nicaea? Is that the town? The, the, the birthplace of Dionysus? Not, oh, not right, Nicaea, yeah. like but nice Nisa, yeah, Nisa. Nisa, right yeah. so you've got a lot of fascinating circumstantial evidence that hey there's this wine cult in the hood right <laughs> with right and, and 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 the cult of dionysus is abundant and around there you've got the wedding right. at cana you've got the juxtaposition the you know coincident or not um epiphany of the date first week mm-hmm. in january and mm-hmm. then you've got the story where you actually reverse roles and you tell it as if it's Dionysus, not the Nazarene, right? right? And your point there is, ha, smoking gun, this, this is one of the main links you draw in the, in the pagan continuity hypothesis. Now, to do the Occam's razor approach to this, right, which I'm sure one of your Jesuit teachers would, would, would have led you through, <laughs> right? Riddle me this, Right. So so the fact that Yahweh, right, that there are accounts in the Old Testament where Yahweh is also identified as a wine god. There are there are um, grape wreaths and things used for crowns that, that there's there's an extant tradition within the Hebraic tradition. You've got gen- blanket syncretism, which is just 
any religion is always gobbling up and consuming that which came before it. And that's everything from Mithras receiving gifts as a sun king in a manger with wise men attending and then Jesus pirating that story. Like we're, we're always rolling them up. And then you get the statement from Jesus at the wedding, I am the true vine. Mm. Not just another vine or the OG vine, the true one. So give me, argue for me the counterfactual on this, which is why isn't this just an example of syncretic accumulation of wine mystery cults? And Jesus, rather than tipping his hat as I'm Bacchus, why isn't he saying those guys were pretenders, I'm the real deal, mm. and kind of clearing the decks of competing wine mystery cults? Mm, mm. Man, you're good, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> These are just, this is what popped up as I'm like reading it at night. I was like, I was like, oh shit, I can't wait to talk to you. You're making me think. So th those are the two ways to interpret John, and mm -hmm. you you alluded to all the all the salient points there. And again, this is this is not my idea. I called mm -hmm. a lot of the exegesis from a great book, uh, which with a great title, The Dionysian Gospel, mm -hmm. by Dennis McDonald. Uh, the reason being that the Greek of John's gospel is just so very weird. Um, and we've always known that, which is why it's not one of the synoptics, uh, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, the fourth gospel has always been the outlier. Um, it yeah. is the only place where you see the wedding of Cana. And so um, I think there's, there's wide agreement amongst biblical scholars that John, whoever John was, he or she or they, uh, was trying to, you know, uh, to trying to, to paint Jesus very much in the colors of Dionysus, but for what purpose? To say that he actually was there to one-up, that he was the culmination of all these, these pagan pretenders, or in fact that he was one and the same as, mm -hmm. as the Dionysus of antiquity. I take the latter um, interpretation. Uh, and the, 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 reason, the reason I do that is because later in John, um, when he's describing the Eucharist, and John's Eucharist is just as weird as the wedding at Cana. So, so in John, it's the only place you have the Lamb of God, uh, which is very str a strange image, by the way, to feast on the blood of the lamb, for example, just the way the Minads of Dionysus would feast on the blood of the goat. It's the only place where you see the true vine, the only place where you have the wedding at Cana. It's also the only place where John uses graphic language to describe the Eucharist, talking about munching on the flesh of Jesus and guzzling down that blood in a very pagan way. And after John very viscerally puts these words into Jesus's mouth. The Jews assembled around him in John 660, which is my new favorite line in John. They oh, say, sweet. what is this? What, what are this is cannibalism. What are you talking about? Um, and so in that one line in John 660, when, when, when the Jewish community is hearing about munching on this flesh and cannibalistically drinking this blood, um, when they use the word skleros, like this is really difficult for us to comprehend in that one line, I get the impression that that was John's wink wink to initiates saying you will now find in the Jesus mysteries everything you expect it to find in the pagan mysteries of Dionysus. Not only that, not only is Jesus domesticating this, but it's bringing it directly to your own dining room. Um, so Alcibiades, right, the thing that used to be punishable by death, that is now thing you can do at home. Jesus gives the green light for the celebration of the mysteries at home. And I think that that's John's huge innovation. Well, holy smokes, you say at home. So this is, is, is it just that the church is not established enough yet? So you, cause you, you spoke of, what was your, your term? House sacraments or house? house? House churches. House churches, yeah. So basically the idea that sort of decentralized epiphanic self-initiatory ritual. 
there was no other way. I mean, there, there were no wine shops. It was all vino di casa. So it, it was all these these boutique wines, these craft beers. And in, in the in the in like in, in Spain, for example, what I what I turned up in Spain, that was a craft beer, a craft sacrament. Christianity only could have availed itself of craft sacraments. There was no central depository for church wine. There were no physical basilicas. There were no brick and mortar churches. It was all private homes which acted as churches, and it was underground catacombs where the earliest Christians in like some Mexican Day of the Dead ceremony went to go visit their deceased ancestors. This was Christianity for the better part of 300 years. So all they had was vino de casas. So, so, so you think that sort of John was a little bit of a sort of nana wink intel inside, like boom, boom, boom. Like here, here's Dionysus smuggled into the new era and, and you know how to go get yours. Like if you can follow these, you know, hooded instructions. And why would that be if John's writing at the end of the first century AD? Because even though, you know, the followers of Dionysus were executed by as many as 6,000 people in one day, according to the sources, in 186 BC by the Roman Senate, by the time of Caesar, Augustus, and even into the second century AD, there was a lot of suspicion on people doing what the Christians were doing or the Dionysians were doing, which is gathering together for these secret rites and employing these magical sacraments in this vaguely or you know, explicitly cannibalistic ceremony. This was not the kind of thing that the Romans were happy about. Well, well now I would have to think you've read Stranger in a Strange Land, yes? Yeah, right. So, and I'm actually rereading it for the first time since college. Like, I, I, I think I must be weird because, like, if I love a book, I or a movie, I don't go back and reread it all the time. It's too you good. Know? You don't want to ruin it. It's too exactly. Good. Like, like Lord yeah. of the Rings has just lived in my mind since high school, and I haven't read it again. You know, but I like so, so I, I did that with Stranger in a Strange Land, and just, and I specifically got the tip from someone of like get the unabridged edition only because the rest was all bowdlerized and there's more like Gnostic sexy time in the unabridged version. So, so I'm like, and I'm, so that's what I'm reading right now. But it's just, you know, that that was one of the first books, obviously, to widely popularize. Like, hey, you think cannibalism is so bizarre and strange, but look at the Christian Eucharist and, and, and look at what's going on here. So you, you hint at the, uh, the funerary rites and we can go in one of two directions. We can either go to Vatican catacombs or, or Magna Graecia and, and the Mystery Highway. So in your chronology or in the sense of your argument, which is, which is the, as we jump over from the wedding at Cana, where's next? Oh, that's a great, that's a great one. Well, I mean, just, I mean, chronologically, the, the Mystery Coast Highway is not a terrible way to go because it, it, it will eventually take us to Rome and the mm -hmm, catacombs, yeah. which I think, I think do come later, but Okay. What Jamie's referring to is this, again, I'm always on the hunt for like actual data that you can mm -hmm. sit down, an actual scientist or an actual theologian, like I did on Monday, by the way, at Harvard Divinity School with my friend Charlie Stang. And, mm. and he put me to the test, man, and, and good for him for, for doing it. Um, and what we, what we talked and argued and laughed about was this really witchy wine uh, that I present in the book, uh, confidently dated to 79 AD. Outside that, Pompeii. That, that's, that's the Pompeii one. Yeah. So you have that you have that apothecary, right? That gets yeah. uncovered and all the elements there. And then you make a connection of both cultural and pharmacological transport north south. Right. right. Between between those the southern, I mean, I wouldn't even call them hinterlands of Rome, because right, I mean they were sort of more like outposts of Greece when they were right. bumping. Right. And then and then and then you know 
Is it circumstantial? Do you have any direct connections of that culture in Sicily and, and, and Southern Italy that is very Hellenized? And you make it a compelling case that they in fact have, they've got the mystery, like the secret got passed over there. It was vibrant and thriving here. And there, now we've got, you know, guilt by association, right? You've got Rome and the Vatican right here. What? And right. so, so, so talk us through that because, and well, yeah, talk us through that because in that apothecary, I think there was a listing of, of a whole bunch of interesting compounds, but let's stick with your, your main thesis for now. Well, I mean, ju yeah, just to put it quickly, so what was unearthed there in Pompeii and date it to just after the eruption of Vesuvius, so we know 79 AD, um, and I say it's the right place at the right time to have potentially made its way into the hands of the earliest Christians, right? This is the first generations of Christians following Paul's letter to the Romans would have been around this time. And I say it's the right place because I don't think it's a coincidence, as I told Dr. Stang, that, that the Catholic Church and the Vatican sits where it does today in Rome. Because to itself, if you were looking for a good mystery cult, you'd be hard-pressed to go anywhere else in the Mediterranean outside Magna Graecia. There were the, the mystery cults dedicated to Demeter and Persephone and Dionysus and all these cults that have been around for centuries, they had a really strong foothold in Magna Graecia, in and around Naples and Pompeii. Um, and when, when the churches start getting built, here's the connecting thread that I call the Mystery Coast Highway. It's, it's going back and forth from Rome to the south, and it continues even, even after Constantine. I mean, so the first churches pop up in Rome in the fourth century, not too long after, the only basilicas outside Rome that Constantine built were Naples and Capua. I mean, so, you know, the, 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 there was always a connection between Rome and part south in Christianity and in the Greek mystery cults that preceded it. I mean, Peter Kingsley writes wonderfully about this in The Dark Places of Wisdom. He talks about the priestesses going up and down from mm -hmm. Vedia south, even further south, up to Rome uh, to, to serve in these sanctuaries, these very Greek sanctuaries that became the religion of Rome. 400 years before Jesus, 500 years before Jesus, the Romans were already obsessed with Greek religion and their cults. So, I mean, the Mystery Coast Highway is the glue that bridges all these circumstantial together. All the way to Francis Ford Coppola's remix of The Godfather 3, and we got Sicily <laughs> to the Vatican, you know? Exactly. It, never, it never ends, right? So, <laughs> so um, although, I mean, and that actually, we, I'd like to come back to that, the notion of the, the, you know, not just the pagan continuity hypothesis, but the, the, um, the mystery continuity hypothesis through the Vatican. So here's a question for you. Um, do you think that the Christians as a nascent cult adapted a highly effective psychotechnology that was rattling around their hood bolted it onto an initial revelation from, let's say, the Nazarene and the original apostolic tradition? Or was it causative? And JC himself had hooked down the hooch. <laughs> See, this, this is where I got into trouble with Dr. Stang and mm -hmm. with other biblical scholars. Um, I think JC hooking the hooch is, is ultimately unknowable. And I, I, I do spend a couple chapters in, in my book talking about the influence of the Dionysian mysteries, you know, before, during, and after the life of Jesus in Galilee, right? Where there, today, we have the evidence of vibrant cults to Dionysus in and around exactly where Jesus was preaching. Uh, so I think it's, it's unlikely 
that some of his earliest followers, including in Galilee, would not have been unaware of these other pagan Dionysian sacraments. And that, that goes to stand in Rome as well. So I don't, I don't know what was happening in Galilee in the first century AD. What I do know is that in these early pockets of very mystical Christianity, and again, I'm not claiming this was Christianity writ large, but, but some threshold minority of Christian communities, and Southern Italy seems like a pretty viable candidate, as does part, you know, communities in Egypt, uh, for example, where, like where the Nag Hammadi corpus was discovered, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or in parts of what is today Turkey, uh, Ephesus, for example, to whom John was writing. I think there were ripe communities that would attempt to blend these two mystery traditions, because in many ways they're easy to blend. You know, one Lord of Death um, with his potion of immortality, replacing mm -hmm. another Lord of Death and his potion mm -hmm. of immortality. I mean, I don't think it would have been crazy to worship both Dionysus and Jesus. And I think Jesus would have appealed to many, many mystics at the time for exactly that purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. So then let's, now let's go into the catacombs, because that's super rad part of your storytelling, right? And, and the idea that underneath the Vatican, I think it's underneath St. Paul's as well, right? There was a combination of different ones, right? So, mm -hmm. and is the presumption that the larger edifices that we see today were built on top of what were already sacred sites in use, or were, is there a sense of then they were, they were built and then excavated under for the super secret stuff? Was there any sense of sedimentary mm -hmm. timing on that? Yes. I mean, so St. Peter's Basilica, again, it's no accident where it stands today. Where, where it stands yeah. today is Same with Notre Dame, Chartres. I mean, all sorts of places are continually accreted upon ancient, ancient sacred spots. Yeah, Notre Dame has a fascinating history, which we can discuss over a beer in Texas someday. Um, <laughs> St. Peter's sits over 22 mausolea, um, something like, and like a thousand tombs that were only relatively recently excavated in the last century, partly because there was a giant curse that, that people thought would be foisted upon them for any who, who dare disturb the remains of St. Peter and those who lie around him. But we do know that there are, um, you know, tombs down there. And there's a, a giant necropolis. There's a city of the dead under St. Peter's Basilica. And what was happening there? What was happening in this city is that the earliest Christians were gathering together for chill-outs. This is what Ramsey McMullen Emeritus professor of history at Yale calls these early Christian sacramental celebrations were chill outs. Again, Mexican Day of the Dead type stuff, like going down there with wine um, on the anniversary of your relative's death and just, you know, getting shit drunk uh, so that you could commune with them. This is what this is called the refrigeria in Latin. We get the word refrigerator. Uh, and this this is this is what Christianity was before St. Peter's Basilica was was heaped on top of it. And down and, there. And didn't you say there's little straws that go into the sarcophagus like you were yeah, able to like pour? Yeah. Ramsey McMullen talks about the tubes, these vials that you would literally pour wine into so they could reach underground to the mouth of the deceased. So like pour a 40 on the curb from a homie, you know, like that kind of a thing. We get it. This is where we get it. Yeah. So, okay. So, so back to correlation and causation, were those funerary rites of the refugio, um, or refrigeria, was that, was that linked practically and metaphorically with the death, rebirth, initiation ritual of what you're saying is the carry through of Lucis, or is it circumstantial? We're hanging out with our dead friends and getting, getting hammered. So is, is the death rebirth thing more than just correlation there. I think so. No, I, I, th I think the refrigeria grows out 
of a tradition, I really do think stretches back 12,000 or more years, or maybe tens of thousands of years beyond that. But, you know, I, I talked about evidence of a skull cult at Gobekli Tepe, where there's the mm -hmm. same bizarre interaction of the living with the dead. This is the words of the German Archaeological Institute, by the way, not my crazy hippie theory. Uh, they, you know, they found evidence of an actual skull cult at Gobekli Tepe uh, close to 12,000 years ago, where there may have been the sacramental brewing of beer, by the way. So again, this concept of sacraments, pilgrimage, sanctuaries, um, Day of the Dead ceremonies is, is a really old idea. It comes into the Near East in another tradition I talk about, the Marzea, uh, which is, you know, this, this other, you know, quite pagan event that made its way into ancient Israel and, 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 and Judah, uh, where there's another interaction of the living with the dead over, over the sacrament of wine, actually entering into trances, falling down dead, to commune with the wine, just like the wine gods of the time, like El, or maybe Osiris before him. And then I think amongst the Romans, it's the same thing. It's just a variation on the same theme. The, the ultimate goal is death and rebirth. The way it comes out in, in Rome is these underground catacombs where you don't just let the, the dead lie. Uh, they, they need nourishment. They need, they need constant attention. And what better way to do that than over an all-night wine feast? <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, so yeah, so um, now, now let's talk about the, the grab bag because, you know, there's been some more recent research from the Temple of Jerusalem, I think the old temple, right? With, yeah. with cannabis as incense on the altars. There's Rick Strassman's conjectural stuff on, you know, I mean, everybody and their mothers in that whole nation of Hamala plus Acacia, you know, are, are those some um, old world ayahuasca analogs because of the... MAO uh, in inhibitors plus the tryptamine rich acacia trees. Was that a thing? Was that, you know, was that in the, in the incense um, around the temples? Was that creating any state experiences? You speak of some of the Stone Age things, the witches, unguents, and, you know, Belladonna, Deutura, some of these other things. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm sure you're familiar with like the sort of folklorist and anthropolog anthropologist critique of Joe Campbell. Right. They're yeah. like, if everything's one story, nothing's one story. Right. The idea of when you try and get too universal, you're just cherry picking facts and you end up with kind of just a smear of what has all sorts of critical variations and psychedelic enthusiasts who want to see psychedelic compounds behind, you know, the invisible college, the invisible religion that the, the greatest story ever told, you know, how do we if, if everything is drugs? And everything is the one thing. How do we not end up with pharmacological reductionism in our study of this nuanced unfolding of both human neurochemistry and mythopoetics and the kind of intersection of both? Um, I, I, Dr. Stang at Harvard asked a very similar question, um, mm -hmm. which I, you know, it, it takes me some time to, to answer that. I mean, so I, I dropped this notion of a religion with, with no name, mm -hmm. which is sensationalist and kind of, you know, implies the notion of continuity from paleolithic prehistory all the way into classical history and early christianity which i know is absurd uh because what i'm what i'm really trying to do and what he pointed out is what i'm really trying to tease out are the data points i mean so the whole first half of my book sits on a tiny piece of ergotized beer that was found in spain in the second century bc the whole second half of my book sits on an even tinier piece of witchy wine with cannabis, opium, and henbane that may or may not have been Christian. Um, so, you know, but it's all wrapped up in this, you know, hero with a thousand faces type 
analog of maybe this religion, for lack of a better phrase, um, unnamed, did, did wend its way into all these different traditions. Maybe there was this pharmacopoeic know-how that, that for which there was some continuity. And, and I don't know if the Proto-Indo-Europeans invented this and passed it on to Southern Europe. I do know that there were Anatolian agriculturalists who may have you know, been out there proselytizing the sacrament of beer, and beer does make its way around, as does holy wine. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm always questioning myself as to whether there is this religion with no name or not. It's, it's a catch-all term, like Joe's hero, for the concept of, you know, direct experience and the role that sacraments play in that direct experience. And how do we turn, you know, these data points into a narrative? By doing more testing. I mean, we're not yeah. done yet. You know, we got, we got decades left on this stuff. And now we have, you know, actual archaeochemists and actual universities who do want to take a look at this stuff. We have funding uh, coming in um, to actually take a look at this stuff and do this work. I mean, so we're, we're just beginning. I know it's a, you know, it sounds trite, but we're, we've only scratched the surface. And, and I think... You know, well, let's talk about that because, you, you know, you've, you've put a... You've put a What's the right word? I, w I wanted to say pin in the map. It's not quite that. It's almost like you hit a tuning fork, right? You, you, you sent out a signal... Uh, yeah. In this last year, based on you know a, a lot of quiet, thankless, solitary work beforehand, right? But it came into the world and sent out a lot of ripples. And has that helped crystallize um, the next chapter of this of this inquiry? Yes. The, the the short answer is is yes. And people have asked me like, um, you know, was this the right time for your book? Why didn't you wait until you found the Holy Grail? And, you know, I said, well, we've been looking for the Holy Grail for 2000 years. Why is that? That's not my job. Um, I thought, you know, the book stands on its own as proof of concept that this is not something to be scoffed at. There, there is hard archaeobotanical, archaeochemical data out there. And the only thing between us and a Holy Grail is a bunch of funding, uh, a bunch of attention and, you know, bona fide scholars taking a look at this. And that's what's now happening. So after publication last September, I'm having wonderful conversations. Uh, including with Andrew Coe at MIT, who I profile throughout the book, and mm -hmm. faculty from all kinds of departments at Harvard, uh, from uh, faculty at the University of Watersfriend in South Africa, folks who actually want to test the stoned ape theory, for example, in a very scientific way. So, like, the community is beginning to come around to the fact that this is not just a risible idea. This is something that can be investigated. Um, it, it bears fruit, and, and, and I think it can be told in a way that, that excites people about the future of religion. Hell yeah. And I think both, both you and I locked, locked on to uh, Michael Pollan's use of the term placebo sacrament, <laughs> right? So that idea <laughs> that, right, you actually, you know, birthright is to actually um, have, you know, first and second person experiences of the newness, right. not just hand-me-down stories, right? And, right. That, and that, that's an essential for functioning psychosocial health and, and vibrancy and resiliency. You know, that we, we need yeah. our stories of, because you know, death rebirth is fundamentally a story of renewal, right? Practice resurrection, said the great Jamie Wheeler. And you also have... Uh, That's Wendell Berry, though. That's Wendell Berry. We've got yeah, to give it up for him. <laughs> so maybe this is yours. Uh, first person humanity finding its first person divinity, which is something mm. I really like um, from your forthcoming title, uh, which, uh, which I think is fantastic, by the way. And I think the mm. only way to recapture that rapture is to is to invest in these very first person experiences with the divine and whether that's practicing resurrection or devising some other pharmacological method for significant ego dissolution i think that you you know i think you found it i think you and i are both attracted to the same proposition 
Yeah. Well, I was I was excited to read your book and, and hear you continually hammering death rebirth, death rebirth, because it sort of has just bubbled up for me a thousand different ways, and then, you know, ends up, ended up being the kind of the whole linchpin of the book, which was like, here's the actual neurophysiological profile, folks. You get into this zone, you know, like like high heart rate variability, supersaturated nitric oxide, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, and anandamide, um, you know, s cycle some form of energy in the form of sound, light, wave, orgasm, pain through, through a hominid nervous system, move your, you know, s drop your brain waves into delta wave, super low frequency vibration, um, reset your brainstem at a primal level with compounds and or sensory motor overload. And you too will have a wild ass experience that will, you know, deliver accelerated information and pattern recognition, a nervous system reset, and some quite likely accompanying glimpse of the sublime. You know, but I, I, I guess, <laughs> Well, my, my, my sense was, <laughs> well, I was, I was, I mean, I was curious, what was your experience um, seeing, seeing the exact same thing we've both been looking at laid out in a completely different um, discipline or format or language? Yeah, it was wonderfully confirming to be, to be quite honest, because hmm. um, I didn't write as much about breath work or sex, um, only, only hmm. because I just, I love this, I love this concept of the psychedelic hypothesis and wanted to see hmm. how far it would go. And wanted to see if there was any any, any data for this. Uh, and at the end of the day, it, it seems like we're working with the same data points. And I, the phrase you just used, the hominid nervous system. I mean, at, at, again, whether it's through the use of psychedelics or otherwise, you know, we are walking bags of neurons. Um, and in this nervous system, as Dennis McKenna says, you know, every spiritual experience is ultimately a drug experience. If you're talking about serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin, etc. I mean, we're all just you know manipulating that nervous system in one way or another. And I think that that's the real key. If, if there is a key beyond psychedelics, I think that's the key is why are we built with this nervous system? Like Eliade says, I mean, religion or metaphysics is just, it's the combination of, of uh, all this, you know, high aesthetics and biology. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're biological beings. And so, I mean, to, to, I don't see how you, you can investigate religion and ignore that. Well, and, and so the, the university, uh, was it Witwatersrand? in South yes. Africa, right? So you said they have they have a rigorous hypothesis to test the stoned ape theory, which in, in you know, in my book, I let the air out of that balloon and say it wasn't the stoned ape, it was the horned ape, right? It was our it was our psychosexuality that was largely a highly atypical in the animal kingdom and also a, a serious, a much more, you know, a certainly more widely distributed mechanism of action. I'm not, don't have a dog in that fight. That was all just rhetoric, right? But I'm fascinated by um, what is their hypothesis? How are they going to how are they going to get under the hood of that? This is what we're trying to figure out. So I reached out to to Lee Berger, uh, who's like the paleoanthropologist, paleoanthropologist there in South Africa. Uh, he's known, amongst other things, for discovering Homo naledi, that previously undiscovered hominid species hmm. in 2013, 2014, super archaic, uh, dates about 300,000 years ago. But what's weird about Homo naledi and where Berger found it is that it's in this ritual cave system where he sees evidence of burial rites. And so what he says about Naledi is that it, it could be the first species where we have evidence of the recognition of self-mortality. And if they're, if they're confronting mortality and passing along these burial rites from one generation to another, 
he says you might need a couple things. You might need language to properly do that. And you might need, or at least it might come in handy, a pharmacology, a sacred pharmacology. And so he's very open to the idea. And uh, we've been talking about this for, for months now. Uh, and so what, we're, what we've agreed is that, you know, if the hypothesis is worth testing, like any scientific hypothesis, if this can be, you know, observable, testable, repeatable, falsifiable, uh, then there's got to be a way to discover some kind of plant fungal arrangement inside the stomachs or bones of these hominids. And so mm. we have some technology. We have dental calculus analysis and we have proteomics and things like that uh, and DNA. But, but I think that in the course of actually trying to figure this out, what really excites Lee is that we may in fact find new technology. And it may be like what he says, like a 30-year-old postdoc in South Africa who actually mm -hmm. comes up with a new technology to even test for the presence of like archaic fungal spores, which has never been done. I mean, this is this is the whole point of science. And are there mummified remains? Like what's what's the act what's the what's the material that's testable at this point? Uh, bones. Okay. I mean it's bone I mean not 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 much artifact. There's there, there's some artifacts in the record, but it's it's a lot of it's a lot of bones. Um, you know, some are better preserved than others. And so, uh, but, but, but again, I mean, you know, this, this is how new technology is born. Um, can we look inside, you know, those bones and find something? It's possible. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, you're saying, hey, you, you're interested in the, the initiatory experience of sort of transformative culture writ large. You've focused right. on the pharmacology. It's, it's that, you know, there's an, even if it's been a stitch, a, th a thread that's been dropped, it is there to pick up, right? There is, there is some actual quantifiable data to assess. And that you step back a little bit from, say, breathwork, sexuality, some other techniques of ecstasy, to kind of use Eliade's terminology again, right? Yeah. But let's, let's go back, because you, you mentioned Nag Hammadi, you know, and, and I would imagine that like Elaine Pagel's work, you know, has figured in your life, and her, hers is probably the, some of the more central in my own thinking over time. In fact, it really was like uh, the, her, dis her, I think it's the Gospel of Magdalene's interpretation of Genesis, where yeah. they get to the fruit of the tree of knowledge and Adam and Eve are getting bitch slapped by Yahweh. And then right there, the critical scene, the pivotal scene for all of Christianity of like why we suck and are doomed to suffer. And then in comes Sophia and says, and who made you son? You know, and it's like this <laughs> mic drop and you're like, what the fuck? Like that is the exact opposite of the entire thing. And, and the yeah. serpent is actually on team good guy. And you're yeah. like, wait a second. That's why I was so disappointed reading the Da Vinci Code. Because, you know, you're on the search for the grail. You yeah. find, in fact, that this is true, that Jesus and Magdalene were lovers, had an offspring and a bloodline, and what, the outcome is she's really good at detective mysteries? You're like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, like, surely, surely there is supposed to be something a little bit more vibrant as God consciousness gets handed down. <laughs> we'll find it someday, Jamie. Yeah, I'll tell you what. So, so, so then let's, let's talk about... Um, because that's obviously one of the things that is, I think, most noteworthy of the early Gnostics. And maybe you can help me. I've never been able to reconcile canonical Gnosticism with Gnostic mysticism. I'm a sort of soft Platonist and a soft Gnostic, I think, in the sense that like the Platonic thing, I'm, all, I'm definitely like, yeah, there definitely seems to be a realm of information that is more implicate, infinite, and perfect than stuff down here. But like, back and forth on platonic doctrine, I don't have a dog in that fight. And the same thing with Gnostics, like, like I, don't, I don't buy into the Valentinus, Arrhenius, you know, pissing matches and the, and the 
this world is completely illusory and, and is false and made by a demiurge, the kind of, you know, OG matrix argument. But the idea of Gnostic, Christic, mystic initiation feels like a hell yes. So, you know, if we go back to, to Pagel's making the case that, you know, first century to third century roughly is a highly participatory, decentralized, experiential mystery cult of Gnostic Christians, right? And, and it's presumably able to recreate that ineffable experience, mm -hmm. at least in small batches. You know, definitely right. not the, 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 the Pauline church, you know, but it, they had some repeatable psychotechnology there. Um, right. What's your sense of all that? Like, what do you think uh, was going on there? Yeah, another, uh, something I always struggle with too. I like how you captured this, by the way, in, in your forthcoming title, in chapter 15. And you're, you're talking about the difference between chronos and kairos, right? Mm -hmm. These two concepts of time, like linear time and transcendent eternity, right? And how those two can live together. So uh, there, there's a version, as you rightly put, of Gnosticism where... Um, you reject the world for what it is, and you reject this pain, you reject this suffering as illusory. Um, and, but there are other mainly Neoplatonic readings, Neopythagorean readings, which bump up against Greco-Egyptian Gnosticism and Hermeticism and all these wonderful things happening in the Mediterranean in, in those same centuries that Pagels mm -hmm. is writing about. And it produces a form of Gnosticism that, that, that I identify with, where, where the world is not to be rejected. Um, and, you know, these these mystical practices bring you back into Kronos to to right here, right now, to 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 suffer through this stuff. Right. And not just suicidally, um, you know, aspire to the celestial archetypes for the sake of that. I mean, it's it's here that the work is done. Right. It, it's it's here that you engage the fight. Um, and so that, that that's my own invented brand of Gnosticism outside the Nag Hammadi corpus. And uh, the, the, this illusory failed state that we are in post Eden. I think there, there's another form where the identification of the self with divinity is the thing that brings you right back to the here and now and your very human state. And so all you're writing about the body work and sex, etc., I think is a beautiful testament to that. A 21st century Gnostic tale for how we can uh, do all the mystical work, but also live in these bodies and try to perfect the world at the same time. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know what your what conversations you you might be focusing, you know, pleasantly at least from where I sit, like into the 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 specific scholarly details. But then when I sort of pop up a level into the contemporary scene, like the sort of psychedelic yeah. Renaissance, transformational culture, yeah. all these kind of things, yeah. I'm getting increasingly concerned by how it it, it almost feels like a, a centrist pro human position is almost like standing on an upside down stainless steel bowl right now and you get right. even just an inch off and people are just dropping off into these crazy ditches and one of them seems to me like a sort of um unholy mm. metastasization of new thought mm. psychedelic hubris mm. and crypto fascism mm. Because you take, you know, you take the, you know, it's one thing to have a, you know, nominally alt-right um, worldview, like a QAnon, you know, sort of like it's, it's all these things and here's our team and this is what it looks like. And then you have this kind of, they meet around the backyard fence with the anti-vax, we keep our vibes high, 
you know, even lineage back to like Barbara Marx Hubbard, you know, and some mm. of the evolutionary spirituality and like, well, there may be a bifurcation. There may be all those folks that eat too many carbs and white sugars and are becoming obese and are diabetic and maybe their frequencies are too low to make the transition, you know, mm. and maybe, and, you know, and, and again, the sort of like a dual way, dual labor system, you know, in many economies, there's almost a sort of dual consciousness system with those who have access to nutrition, Bali, Tulum, Marin, 5-MeO-DMT, you know, et cetera. And, and there becomes this kind of, let's just sort of go fuzzy around the implications as to whether, at what point do I actually put down my net and fuck off and never mind the, the fishes of men, never mind my brothers and sisters. Like at what point do we actually create a bifurcation in our sphere of concern and our obligation and duty to act on behalf of our fellow humanity? Because we've told ourselves, well, I mean, look, we're pretty healthy. I think we're gonna weather this whole COVID thing ourselves. We're all good. You good? We're good. We're mobile. Yeah. We have choice. And we keep yeah. going back to this wishing well. And the wishing well, funnily enough, keeps telling us more of what we'd like to hear. Mm. And that's the sort of tricksy and seductive nature of spiritual bypassing is that it never, it never fucking comes at you straight on going, hi, this is a spiritual bypass. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah I think about, and you write about the spiritual materialism that seeped in here. We're, we're caught between you know, the fundamentalists on the one hand and the nihilists or the new atheists on the others. And, and here's a lot of people in between, whether the, whether the neo-fascists or the, or the neo-psychedelic renaissance patrons. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I fear, like you, I think, like the, the medicalization of mystical experience. And I wonder about the over-commercialization of sacred experience. And I wonder about why all this is just ultimately, you know, a hunt for like personal wellness and personal salvation. That was not the call of the Gnostics. And I love how you always come back to, you know, I felt the same, the same pain, by the way, about like my own home myth, right? I mean, I studied mm. uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, obviously, and Taoism and, and, and Sufism and Kabbalism. And I come back to the Gnostics and I come back to Neoplatonism. I come back to Neopythagoreanism. And this Jesus that I've like reconstructed only for me. I mean, so if, if you resonate with Dionysian Jesus, great. But it was it was like it was my identity crisis to try and merge the Greek and Christian minds. And that's mm -hmm. where I find peace. And the yeah. reason I find peace in that, because it's not just about I mean, truthfully, what I see in the Greek mystery cults is a lot of personal self-satisfaction, a lot of wellness. Right. A lot of um, do, do you uh, mean historic or contemporary? No, historic. Historically, I see. I mean, the what what differentiated Christianity from the pagan mystery cults was agape, was love, and charity, and goodwill, and taking care of brothers and sisters. The Christians were known for that. Pagels writes about this. Mm -hmm. uh, Bart Ehrman writes about this. They were known for that. People wrote about this. It was weird that they they took care of each other. Um, and that's some of the same mysticism that I experienced at the very beginning of this conversation. I talked about my Kaidos experience. Um, I realized it wasn't about like my wellness and my search for personal salvation. The the whole point is what I found is that, you know, by loving, by getting rid of love, by spreading love, you actually get more back in this weird, you know, in this weird uh, feedback loop. And, you know, I, and I would hate to see the psychedelic renaissance just be another wellness culture. It's not about that. It's very, I think it's a very sacred path and that if you're not, if you don't take away from it, the love of brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't think you're getting anything out of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, what, what came up for me is, is a couple of things. One is, um, I mean, we could have just been both been dumb monkeys banging away on a typewriter, but the fact that we have 
constructed, right, um, versions of that Gnostic Christic identity that seem pretty much one to one. I mean, they seem to be the same. And even the mention of not just Neoplatonism but Neo Pythagoreanism as well. Like like Pythagoras was a late breaker into my world in this respect. Like I was reading something on Gurdjieff and, and, and there was a chapter called The New The New Pythagorean. And I was like, oh yeah. shit, that's a thing. You know, like he was actually had it going on before Plato did. Um so without 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 um well we're 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 a sample size of two. But I think that, you know, expanded out from anybody who's read the read things we're writing and, and vibe with that too, it could be a larger data set, which is like, huh, I, I doubt we invented them. Sui generis. Like like my sense is that that this is a thing. And and the other piece, when I and, and funnily enough, I mean, sharing my personal wrestling with that being a sort of closeted mystic Christic, that was the most vulnerable I felt in the whole writing of this book. I mean, I've said wow. I said some utterly outrageous shit up front. And I'm like, oh, fine, I'll just lean into that. I, I know how to snip the wires to these bombs. Let's go. But it came to More that. More than skinny dipping with your family. That was such a sweet experience that that, that just, I mean, I, I can absolutely already anticipate the shock and horror of my brother and sister. Oh, Jamie, how could you? <laughs> you know, but really, there was no, there, there was no dirty laundry shit. There wasn't, it was just a beautiful scene. So it was like, you know, that, no, for me, it was the, it was the story of that rabbi shaman zakter and me weeping realizing fuck i guess i'm a christian like but what does that mean that's such that's such weak sauce you got to be kidding me yeah. and and just and and i remember it was from ken kesey he had actually he had lost his son in an accident in a in an auto accident which way well after his merry prankster days um and he somehow returned back to a, a Christian faith as well. And I mean, I literally was like, everything I wrote was dead serious, like fully hot. I was like, it's got such horrible branding problems. Like, how do we do this? How do we, how do we name this thing? What feels like true light at the center without it triggering all of the backlash and all of the collected trauma of thousands of years. And I think that's why um, I was so grateful to find, uh, you know, your, your derelict Jesuit, uh, Tula de Chardin, right? The idea of the Omega point. I was like, that's it. We yeah. can we can dust this off, and it can be the Omegans. It can be Team Human is are the Omegans, mm. you know, at the end of time, becoming the body of Christ together. That's a big concept. The concept it, of Genesis. I mean, there's isn't yeah, there, 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 yeah, there's nothing bigger. But as I mean, as a historical religion that exists in time, right? It it, it has to end in time as well, at least in chronological time in Chronos. And I think the only way to do that is when at the expiration of the planet and this, uh, the, the bifurcation of the noosphere. Now we're getting into wonky concepts, but like, what does this unity mean? Where is this unity going? And I love that concept from Deschardins where he says that this is uh, that moment when, the, when the, plant, the death of the planet meets the death or resurrection of the species coincides with like the redemption of a certain percentage of the universe and that we are playing out the cosmic mystery here on Terra, like right here, right now, we are the the actors in a cosmic drama and what we do and what we think and how we love impacts the evolution of the cosmos. There's nothing better than that. Yeah, yeah, dude, it gave me goosebumps. I, I, again, it was one of those ones that I had like in my in my brain, I had a little filed away that 
that Gilad had said something about the end of time and the Omega point and all of us becoming the body of Christ. I was like, that's awesome. And then as soon as I went back into it and he described those three arcs that you just talked about, like the, the and including like the carrying capacity of the planet, writing yeah. in the th- 20s and 30s about this, like there's that one. And then there's people yeah. drawn to love and there's people that, you know, it's basically light and dark and those three intersecting at the end of time. And it's n- and no one can tell how it's going to end up. And that gives meaning to the whole experience and couldn't be anything other than. And you're like, oh, snap. You know, like he just stitched it up for us. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. Gave us, gave us the best. And, and, I mean, my first experience with uh, Teilhard was actually Saint, uh, Stephen Jay Gould oh. writing about him and the Piltdown Man and the Piltdown yeah. hoax. That was in my dad's bookshelf. I just remember reading that. So I had, I always had him filed away as as something to do with something untowards. You know, like like there, there was this anthropological hoax. Um, but then to come back to him as as a mystic has been phenomenal. As, and as a prophet for love, do you, do you mind if I quote my favorite Deschardins phrase? So, so, I mean, it has to do with the Omega point and, and it has to do with crunching down, you know, 2000 years of Christology and Thanatology into, into one bite-sized word, which is agape or love. But Deschardins says, you know, he, he anticipates the, that, that day at the Omega point, perhaps, when after harnessing uh, the space, the winds, the tides, and gravitation, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And on that day, whenever that day is, for only the second time in the history of the world, humanity will have rediscovered fire. Right? Back to your Promethean image. So the idea that it's, it's only love that will drive the evolution of the cosmos and this Christ-like being that Tepra becomes. I mean, that's, that, that to me is a cosmic image. Dude, that's beautiful. If I'd known that one, it would have made it into the book for sure. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of which, um, did you uh, did you get a chance to read that section on music and the Arcana Americana? The yes. stuff with Harold Bloom and and the in- yes. introduction of Anthropos. How did how did that yeah. track for you? Um, I've I've been reading Howard Bloom for longer than I can remember. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, and I love his his notion of apocalypse. Um, uh, so the anthropos, I mean, so this is like, this is homo religiosus. I mean, this is, this is the, the fully, I, I, what do you say? This is the, the, the realized human. Is this, is this possible on the personal level? Is it possible on the collective level? Um, the anthropos, to me, it's funny because it, this, this exists in, in Kabbalism too, the idea of the Adam, right? Um, from which we came and to which we return. It's funny. It's the same, it's the same idea as Deschardins, actually, if you think about it, the anthropos. Um, I, I you know, the, the, maybe Paul was talking about this. Maybe Paul wasn't such a bad guy, Jamie. Maybe, he, you know, I, I love had... I love his love keeps no record of wrong. Other than that, he's dead to me. But you know, but we can we can always you know, we'll make this. <laughs> but he talks about the body of Christ, and he has strange views on women. Agreed. But you know, he the, this concept was out there two thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and for me, the my hope right this notion of like how like the arcana americana being that like in our folk and song tradition you know from gospel and and slave spirituals and jazz and blues and folk is is this embodied like the idea like you and i are not coming up with anything new and the great news about that is that we don't have to invent a culture to hold this from scratch, all we need to do is just look behind us with fresh eyes and yeah. and unearth these gems of testimony and suffering and redemption 
that are in our tradition. And and my sense is is that I don't know if you saw there's there's been an you know obviously politicized news piece on like San Francisco public schools who have basically bowdlerized like 40 school names and it's like I mean, including like Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson and like not not just the usual suspects like General Lee you know like you name it if they did anything wrong ever even once whack they're getting disappeared and you know obviously that is going to be utterly ineffectual and simply provide fodder for the 2022 midterms <laughs> you know like just literally like just 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 shoot ourselves in both feet um but that sense of as we become increasingly aware, like let's say we are accelerating towards the omega point. You know, my sense mm-hmm. is, is is that sort of, you know, logos has been getting skinnier. You know, in the beginning was the word and that made everything. That's about as fatty logos as you can have. And then we're getting to the point now where it's like, we have anorexic logos with like Instagram shamans, you know, going to brainy quotes and fucking slapping something, something up on social media they didn't even read. And you're like, oh, that's not trustworthy. You know, even down to like the Rasta notion of like word sound power for 99% of all of humanity, you could feel the truth in what I had to say. Then you get right. Gutenberg and that's a skinny, you know, before you had, and then you had, you had illuminated manuscripts. So they're like, hey, these are words without, that aren't brought to life with intonation and vagal nerve and mirror neurons, but they're super fucking important. Look how long it took us to make this book, <laughs> you know, right? So we get this degradation to Instagram memes. And at the same time, it feels like Kronos is getting thicker, fatter, where the amount of information and the amount of awareness that we are burdened with is crushing us. And that, you know, maybe there was a sweet spot like 1700, like let's say the enlightenment to, you know, max headroom and MTV, you know, like somewhat like jump cut editing, like that, like, like there was a, there was this rough Venn overlap of like our rational individual identities and effectively the frame weight or density of awareness like how much was going on. We could more or less navigate. There was a bunch of gnarly stuff that happened in those three centuries, but we were more or less right-sized. If you go back to like circular agrarian and hunter-gatherer time, and I don't really have an individual identity, and I'm not wondering what I want to grow up to be president or move to Vegas. I'm like, I am who I am in the same little village doing the same thing my father and my father before him, right? So there was that sort of smeared identity construct. And I just wonder if now, so much of our grief, so much of our overwhelm is that we are aware of where we came from. We are aware of where we're going and it might be off a cliff, the Greta Thunberg, Mm -hmm. right, kind of situation. And we're also aware of the anguish, suffering and injustice. I think like the whole, I think there was something archetypal about George Floyd. It wasn't just that, that, in no way was that the most egregious, super shitty thing that has happened in race relations or police brutality or anything else. But it was that sense of the image on everybody's phone of like, I can't breathe. Mm. And, a, and, a, and a, a man in blue to serve and protect. And mm. I can't breathe. And so that sense of like, that's what I ended the book with. And I, didn't, and I didn't think of it until after the writing, which was the radical hope, right? We actually, as, ra- as rational individuals banking on complete fulfillment and satisfaction of all my needs hopes and dreams in my lifetime for myself we're fucked you know like that was the pox americana like if we ever had a chance to just get all the things and win as consumers zoo animals that was then but that i sense of like we almost feels like we have to re-expand via agape like what you were saying to my my walk on part right in our progress to the omega point it's the whole sort of moses never making it to the land of milk and honey like 
it feels like that's the only way our psyches are going to be able to handle the burden of full awareness of all mm. that all that was all that is and all that's coming and there was a piece in like mit media review i'll send it to you after this but it blew my mind it just came out this week where some dude's done an intellectual history of humans becoming aware of existential threat from the ancients all the way through and it's really not until like 1700 1800 that we can conceive of us snuffing it but life continuing you have apocalyptic mm. religious traditions where something crazy ass happens and then it's game over like completely new script but this idea of even just, you know, paleontology, and this is where Tilad was, you know, on the sharp end of that, like that idea of like, oh, there are these weird buried bones and they weren't mythic monsters. And we came how somehow from apes and then, oh shit, there's a comet and a comet might, you know, the Halley's Comet, the original tracking of that. And oh shit, that might even like intersect with Earth's orbit. And then what would happen? You know, all this, this awareness. And in fact, there's a French dude in like 1803 who writes the first existential risk science fiction book called The Last Man. <laughs> and then he promptly kills himself and i'm like oh shit so like in some respects like that feels like all of us these days like we're all just completely overwhelmed with the burden of knowledge without a g in front of it you know yeah, i didn't realize in fact one of the, the the stark things about your book i didn't realize that the the so-called diseases of despair actually take more lives than all natural disasters and war combined that was shocking to me um, if you think about it. Yeah, it super is. <laughs> and, and I think that that was a WHO report and, and that, I think I had just read it when I was at that conference. It was, uh, in Johannesburg that I opened the book with to hear Aubrey de Grey talking about infinite life extension <laughs> and, 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 the, and, and, and the cognitive dissonance was so strong. Yeah. It was just like, holy shit, you know, like we should really be looking after folks. Yeah. So they want to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least terraforming Mars to give us another option. <laughs> yes, I, I have I have I have had that conversation with those Musk brothers. Um and, and I and I am and, and, and look, I think if anybody has earned a mulligan to do whatever else the fuck they want, it's those guys. Yeah. Um yeah. but I, I for sure do wonder, um, is that our best use? Or more to the point, if it is and they're on it and they're ahead of the curve, then the rest yeah. of us should be having some serious sit-downs as to yes. the implications of it. Yeah, what does that mean for, for the Terrans? What does that mean for us, the old species? Yeah, and, th and that's the thing. I mean, uh, when we were talking about, like, you know, the transformational culture, et cetera, and the intertwingularity, I think the idea that no one's singular monomyth, no one's actual story of how this is going to go down is going to go down that way. And we are getting this absolutely chaotic, turbulent, blending of the intertwingularity, right? They, they, there's not going to be a single outcome and, you know, one group is right and 99 others are flat fuck wrong. It's like they're all intersecting and crashing. And my sense is, is that unless we take stands now, a priori, based on principle, you'll get sucked into some shitty outcome. It's either a bypass, it's, it's a, it's a self-deal, it's a something-something. Unless you do the sort of all of us or none of us. You know, this planet, we're not fucking off to Mars. These bodies, we're not going to do upload our consciousness to computers. This lifetime, no life extinction. Like, right. here I take my stand. Yeah. That was, the, that was the proposition of the Gnosticism that I'm redefining, at least. Is that to take the, take the stand here and now, which is, which is the kingdom of heaven, right? 
Now, the idea that the, the kingdom is here, says the Gospel of Thomas, and we just do not see it. And then if we had eyes to see, we would notice that eternity is available in the here and now, and not some everlasting, you know, state of suspended animation, whether here, Mars, or some other solar system. But maybe th maybe this is the next step on our on our extrasolar adventure, right? This, I, th I think we may be living through that transcendental object in the time that McKenna was talking about uh, in this in <laughs> big plan. Remember in True Hallucinations when he talks about the big plan? The big plan is all these, the, these fungal spores making their way to Earth, hoping to ride on the starships that some able-bodied hominid would, would scratch together after the appropriate millions of years of evolution. And here we are, for as far as we're aware, uh, the only time in the history of our species about to go off planet. And so we're becoming extraplanetary and we may be extrasolar because this sun too will die. And so maybe we're at this right time where we can take the mystery of mysteries, right? This, this, this concept of finding eternity and discovering divinity in these bodies, on these planets, maybe we can actually seed that idea throughout these, uh, these star systems in a, in, a, in a wonderful kind of Star Trek way. <laughs> the best the best i've ever heard on that is is uh philip k dick does it and i'll send it to you it's it's in his exegesis of his in fact that that entire body is like 700 pages of him trying to make sense of his uh this experience and his getting do, do you know that story of like how he gets unstuck in time and he becomes a first century gnostic christian living no. in what oh my god so like philip k dick you know pulp science fiction writer mostly on amphetamines, goes to the dentist, gets a shot of sodium pentothal, comes home numb and whacked out. And I think there's a pizza delivery girl, or maybe it's the pharmacy. Anyway, delivery girl comes to the door and she's wearing a golden Jesus fish necklace. He looks at her, he looks at it, it shoots a beam of pink light at him. He comes completely unstuck in time like Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five. And he is simultaneously living in Orange County, California, 1973, and first century Rome as a persecuted Gnostic. <laughs> and you'll check this out. He can, he can actually, he can speak and decode Aramaic and, 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 and classical Greek. And he accurately gets a message that his son is about to die if he doesn't go to the doctor and sure as shit, he has like a burst appendix or something. So he spends the second half of his career, this is like William James before and after nitrous oxide, Philip yeah. K. Dick spends the second half of his career, he's writing to Ursula Le Guin and he's writing to all these other like luminaries in science fiction of like, what in the ever loving fuck was that? And that's it. <laughs> I gotta and, and, show. Dude, and, and, he, and he says, he says this phrase that gave me goosebumps. He says, we are living in apostolic times. Wow. Yeah. And so anyway, so he has a breakdown of this whole shooting match, including he talks about we are all pluriforms of God. And there is the masculine, which you know, not not gendered, but like masculine or the, he calls it that he says that's the yang. So he uses the I Ching as well. But it's like there's the yang element, which knows its own true nature. And there's the yin element, which descends into terraform, right, and forgets itself. And then there's this paradox, which is that the yang has to chooses to come down to reinfuse the fragmented amnesiac yin with its own nature. But in, in so doing, it forgets its own true nature as well. He says, a terrible irony, but one that can be redeemed, right? When we reconnect and we become homoplasmates, right? <laughs> and, and then go home together forever. Wow. And it's just this, it's that sense of like, let, let, you know, how do we choose to play uh, the infinite game? Wow.
Wow. I, I need to sit with that, Jamie. I'll send it to you because his languaging, I mean, it's dense, but it's beautiful. And it's the cleanest version of, you know, sort of practical Gnosticism that I've ever come across. And, and there is some other one where there's this beautiful story of like of the, the, the fisher king, basically, from the Arthurian legend. And it's talking about the wounded king, um, how, how he, he heals others. He basically, he takes on the wound of the world and he heals others by letting them touch his wounds of light. And then only in that relationship does, does, um, does the whole thing come whole, that love is only wound, that wounds are only love longing to uh, come home. And it's that, that transfiguration or transmutation of bearing witness to the agony and the ecstasy that kicks us out of the chronological mm-hmm. end games and, and puts us in that, you know, that sort of a mega point. It's so interesting, but I'm also super, like there's a part of me that's like, hmm, this could go heaven's gate or cathars in a hurry. You know, like, <laughs> right? Like if you get ecstatic, um, I mean, basically ecstatic mystic death cult is going to be an increasing known issue because yeah. if people, and, you know, and if even if you, you, talk, you alluded to this a few, like maybe 20 minutes ago, but the notion of becoming untethered, Right. right. And sort of seeking the ascendant versus the imminent. And my right. sense is, is that, you know, I mean, tragically, you know, uh, Tony Shea died a few months ago. Right. And, you know, by all indications, he was spending a lot of time in the transcendent. And there right. are lots of there are lots of casualties, you know, outside these nice clinical therapeutic studies in the psychedelic space where people are going back to the wishing well more often than they should or could. And and then coming undone and forgetting the 3D part. Mm-hmm. Often, often fatally, if not, you know, se- you know, with with serious consequences. And so, that question of, you know, I can't blame the Cathars if folks don't know that story. It's like that's what the Spanish Inquisition ginned up to go stamp out, and they were rather than even than the Templars, right? And they, they, you know, and and they and they instilled so much love in the you know the townspeople of France that even those folks chose to defend them. But rather than go mm-hmm. to the rack and submit to torture, they chanted themselves into ecstasy and leapt into the flames of the bonfire themselves. Mm-hmm. So you think, okay, so how do we address that at the end of time as people's grief is already showing stress cracks and how do we help people digest their grief so that they can honor their commitment to this incarnation versus choosing to step off? Mm. So what's, what's, what's your idea of that phased sacramental mystical union? You talked about and you write about um, you know, reincorporating these rites of passage, like at adolescence and marriage and at the end of life. Do you think that works writ large for everybody? Are there places in between where you can envision a modern day mystery school addressing that grief and helping to sacramentalize the human life? Yeah, I mean, my sense is, 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 is you know, hell yes, right? And, and I think, maybe I didn't, there should have been an infograph in there. I kind of forgot to put something in, right? But there was the one, you know, it's just one more bell curve, right? 10% people should never try psychedelics or entheogens and sacramental. Yeah. Ten, and, and 80% hears the story, which I then told. And then 10% get to be test pilots. You know, you can, and, and, and they're actually navigating and mapping terrain helpfully. So that gave ample room and permission for anybody who would ever read one of these books in the first place, right? So they didn't feel they were getting, <laughs> getting put in the corner. Um, 
But my sense is, is that like the Groove and Reconciliation Committee, like what's batch forgiveness? And we talked about Robin Dunbar at Oxford, who's famous for the Dunbar yeah. number of 150 people, but he's also talked about trance dance and the San Bushman and all these kinds of things of like, they had more trance dances in times of social conflict and stress. So what does a Sunday, what is a Sabbath that we yeah. kept? And if half of our Sunday was a three hour interactive movement, movement, breath, celebration, and true release, not, not just kind of sort of, you know, not like repressed waspy kind of situation, but like raise the roof, true anamnesis. And you could use, again, you could use cannabinoids, you could use oxygen, breath holds, nitrous oxide, any of the you know, light, light things, or even do flash mobs of like synchronized consumption of prescription pharmaceuticals in a high vibe environment. You know, like literally you could be like, hey, you know, be reborn at dawn, you know, embark at dark. Like, hey, like, you know, just put it out on Twitter, like see it in the park, 12 p.m. You know, someone's bringing their jam box and we're going to hit play, you know, and then and then everybody does the thing because there is this micro PTSD. There's macro trauma, like the big yeah. hits we've taken in life. And that takes careful, diligent and supportive work. But there's just micro PTSD, which is just the gunge and the shit and the grit. And when we don't flush it, when we don't squeegee that out of our nervous systems, it shows up crimping our relationships and everybody's on hair trigger. I mean, if you look again, social media is not exactly a, a test case for the best of us, but you look at it and you see people are just spring loaded looking to just vent because yeah. in their psycho, you know, neurological system, there's just aggregate stress. Yeah. So, you know, yes, the big rites of passage through a lifetime, but also, you know, frequent periodic celebratory ecstatic discharges of the community you know so that we, so that we walk home as brothers and sisters even if we didn't walk in that way that, that's exactly i mean this is what euripides writes about which is a weird segue but this is that is the bachai is that you you know you you ignore the irrational roots uh of that that hominid nervous system that you mentioned uh <laughs> to your own expense and to your and to your death to the to the extent that you marginalize those those periods of venting, it's interesting how you said that in, in periods of crisis, there's more trance dancing. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that we I'm not sure what the frequency is, and I'm not sure what it looks like, whether it's weekly or monthly or annual. But I, I in addition to those rites of passage, I completely agree. I think that um, you know the right heroic dose under the right circumstances, just for that portion of whomever is prepared for that, could be the thing that helps to stabilize. Uh, the noosphere, which looks pretty dirty right now, if you, if you. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. And 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 when people become psychedelic evangelists and enthusiasts, I think it's actually massively. I think they're missing the point. Like, not everybody needs to become a shaman. In fact, shamans were always rare. And if you think that shamans are our musicians and our DJs and our filmmakers and our novelists and you know, like, like by all means, those folks should go close to the edge because they're called to and they train for it and they're capable of it. You know, but then instantiate into artifact that right. which comes from the numinous, that which comes from the burning bush. Like not everybody needs to try and lend, lend to roast marshmallows over the burning bush. You know, like, right. like, like we don't need to kind of get into um, overly um, sort of naive democratization. It does right. it percolate through a society and does it help and serve in the best ways? Well, dude, this this has been phenomenal, man. And, and, and I know we... we uh, we stretch long. So thank you. Well, God bless, man. We have we have lots of work to do in that case. Absolutely. All right, man. Lots of love, brother. All right. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.